Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to Citizen. This is the first of hopefully many, many episodes where myself and guests, um, people you know, some people you may not know, come together to discuss the things uh, that are important to us. I know a lot of you come from the American Party, um, the show that myself and Dakota Meyer did up until recently. Um, and one of the things we said throughout that throughout that process of of developing and then you know discussing the American Party was that it was not meant to be. Uh, replacement for political parties or a political party at all, but rather um, it was designed to be the realization that American politics, or at least the uh, the, the political spectrum and institution in the United States has completely failed us. Now, I still believe that. What I don't believe is that it serves a lot of purpose to sit around whining about it. Um, I'm not sure there's any real utility in constantly discussing all the ways in which they failed us because ultimately no one gets held accountable for that stuff. Um <clears throat> Democrats and Republicans, independents, uh, bureaucrats, people in corporate America, they continue to fail us on a daily basis. And there's not going to be any accountability because the rules have not necessarily changed, but the, the system itself has grown to such a size that it's now impossible to really govern it, right? It's the, that, the age-old question, who watches the watchers? Um, the purpose of government is to, not even government, but communities in general, uh, are to bind common interests together towards common goals in a way that we can accomplish more together than we could apart. For example dealing with plague or famine or existential military threats or force majeures, act of God, things like that, uh, natural disasters. In some ways it is easier to just take care of yourself or one or two other people or five people. If uh, it's the, uh, the nuclear family, but anybody that's been in a situation like that knows that it, it, there's a diminishing return on your ability to, you know, build buildings and roads and uh, levees to keep floods out and hunting parties to deal with invasive species, animals, or even people. Um, obviously, we can never 
do any of this stuff alone. So this isn't an anarchist manifesto or anything of the such. Um, I think we all, all reasonable people recognize the need for some, some form of government. The difference is that ours was meant to be of, for, and by the people. It seems like people these days think that we're having a negotiation with the government about what we're going to be allowed to do and what we're not going to be allowed to do. But that's not how this works. The government isn't a ruling body over the citizenry. That's not how our, our uh, uh, representative republic was intended to, to work. The negotiation is whether or not we allow the government to continue at all and in what form. It's of, for, and by the people. And if it's not all three of those things anymore, then it's got to go, right? Or it has to be shaped into something new. Now, we've seen over the past 10 years through, I guess more like 15 years through the Obama administration and Trump administration and now the Biden administration that the people that are in places to to affect change like this, people that work in politics, bureaucrats, political pundits that have... uh, you know, jobs at large media corporations, they have no intent to hold everyone accountable. They just want talking points, right? So they're going to stick to their side and parrot whatever talking points are, are being used by that side. And that's it, right? So we're left with two warring factions and, and you know, some free agents, I guess, that constantly lob bombs at one another. And here's the problem, Right. Winning to these people is their side winning. It's passing a Republican bill or passing a Democratic bill or a progressive bill or whatever. Um, But that's not how America wins. Look, there's no shortage of people out there who do a good job uh, of detailing all the the failures and inadequacies and and even sometimes the evil of our government. on both sides of the political spectrum. There's quite a few more people who just use it opportunistically to make money or fame for themselves. But either way, even if we take them at their best possible intent, and I want you to think about this right now before we get into what citizen really is, what has changed? Have we become more reasonable as a community as a country have we is there any coalition in large numbers in the government whether it's on the bureaucratic side or on the political side um, or in the media or even in the in the general national discourse is there any large coalition of reason people that realize very fundamental truths things like the word centrist or moderate doesn't mean that you fall somewhere in between the left and the right necessarily, right? So it's not, um, it, 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 you can't think of it on an XY axis like that. It doesn't make any sense. Being a centrist means that, at least to me, and, and you know, I'm, I, I welcome your thoughts on this. It's, it's something that I've thought about a lot, and it's definitely something that will get into more as the show goes along, but I want you to think about 
the times that you felt politically homeless because your side was doing something completely unreasonable and you were being put into a situation where you had to defend a very stupid idea put forth by a very stupid person. I want you to think about how that made you feel, how you felt taken advantage of as if your belief structure uh, was somehow quantified by your loyalty to these people or these bad ideas. Um, it, It simply cannot happen like that. And it's going in the wrong direction and speeding up almost like the expansion of the universe. It's getting faster and faster. Look around. People are getting more tribalistic, crazier. I say all this to say, it doesn't appear to me that there's a whole lot of hope in relying on the current institutions, those of the national discourse, uh, our Congress, both houses, uh, our president, regardless of who's in office, um, the lobbyists and bureaucrats surrounding them and the corporate interests surrounding them. And again, the national discourse at large, there's no, there's no hope of that working to undo what we've done. My assertion is, and the point of this show and the point of the discussions that we're going to have, the point of the book that I'm writing now uh, to, to recount all of these conversations um, is that as much as government has failed us, as much as the public trust has been lost, as much as it's been incompetence and uh, uh, in a lot of ways arrogance and weakness and very frequently as well outright evil done in the name of your country and your freedom as much as all that horrible horrible stuff has happened it was only allowed to happen because we allowed it America's current failure is our failure. It's your failure and mine. Regardless of what you've done to try to stop it, individually or even in groups, what we haven't done is created a critical mass of reasoned people who believe in liberty. In our best iterations over the past 40 or 50 years now, at best, we have been an open hand slap, right? Four or five individual units, perhaps made of groups, but individual units altogether, or uh, at any rate, slapping somebody in the face and yet stung. It left a red mark on their face for some time. But had we come together, closed ranks, closed our fists, we could have punched them and knocked them out. And for whatever reason, because we had no time for it, no will to do it, we didn't have the courage, um, we didn't like the other person that we may have had to work with, we didn't have the temerity to put our personal feelings aside and use our reason and empathy at the same time to reduce our belief system to core values that we can find in other people and close our fists 
and punch our way figuratively out of this situation. This show is not meant to blame you or myself or our groups or any of that stuff because I don't think there's any real utility in playing the blame game. But there is some utility in accountability. There's utility in pointing out what's happened. There's utility in defining exactly where we are right now. And there's utility in deciding collectively to end this nonsense now. Now, you've all heard the principles uh, that I wrote and that some of you have helped with, uh, some friends have helped with. And over the course of this series, we're going to, uh, we're going to either redefine or better define some of them to include everyone. My assertion is, in the same way that an athlete who has lost their jump shot or is not hitting the ball well, whatever the case is, my assertion is that in those cases where athletes will go back to the fundamentals and focus on the very small things that they can control to make sure that they're getting the basics right, I believe that exercising our civic duty understanding our country, understanding the principles of liberty, understanding the Constitution and what it means, and not making the mistake of believing in ought instead of is, which is to say, the world should be this way, but is it? Not letting ourselves get deluded. I think getting back to the fundamentals of being a good citizen will ultimately be the key to remaking our country in our own image, the way it was meant to be, which is of, for, and by the people. Now on to citizen. Man, it's, <clears throat> it's tough. Trust in, in institutions in the United States has never been lower. There's plenty of studies out there to quantify this stuff, um, but you can feel it. I don't need to tell you. You don't need to be told by me how little we all distrust, not just the government, but all of our institutions now. Um, again, the reason for government is to make our lives easier. It's it's our combined strength, uh, which you know, historically speaking, is probably our only solution to things like famine and disease and existential threats like warfare or force majeure or whatever, as I said before. Uh, it, it reminds me of the phrase, many hands make light work, uh, something I heard a lot when I was growing up um, in Boy Scouts, in athletics, then in the military afterwards. It's a common theme, and it makes sense. When you're trying to lift something heavy or clean up or whatever it is, uh, collecting brass on the gun range, that's something we've had to do a lot. Probably a lot of our listeners have as well. Um, but it also makes sense when building infrastructure for travel, like ro roads and uh, train tracks. Um, are the, the more people that fly on airplanes, the more of us that buy tickets, you know, the cheaper things get, the better the equipment gets. Um, purchasing in bulk alongside others, that's why... Things like 
<clears throat> meat co-ops where you buy a side of beef with another family or whatever uh, work better or mass production in general. Um, we've seen this. I mean, every everybody that's listening to the sound of my voice has experienced this themselves in ways uh, in, in pretty much every facet of your life from the workplace to prime shipping two-day shipping to your front door, pretty much anything you could ever want, right? The reason that that's possible is because we have put our combined needs together and solved them. Now, gaining convenience always requires the sacrifice of something. And and when it comes to government, the sacrifice is liberty. For every ounce of convenience we get from the government there's a pound of liberty surrendered and that's a that's a reality of this situation um and it is something that we should all take very seriously we make these deals with government to uh you know allow a small group of rep- representatives elected representatives to plead our case at the federal level or sometimes at the state level or even at the county level and in exchange we accept the results this formula only works, as I said before, if the government is truly of, for, and by the people. Regular folks go to Washington, true representatives of the ethics and concerns of their constituents, and they debate the best ways to handle our wants and needs. Now, we have career politicians, a separate class or caste system entirely, uh, that very occasionally, if ever, truly welcomes any outsiders. You can see this when certain people join the political class and say and do things that disrupt the order of the political class, the patricians always circle the wagons and protect nobility first before they protect any particular ideology. So anyone that comes in and challenges the system, it either turns them uh, into the thing that they hated or it spits them out entirely. And I assure you that I've experienced this with personal friends uh, on both sides, people that have bought into the, the, the Washington, D.C. nonsense and people that have served shortly and decided that it is irreparably broken. And you know without me having to tell you multiple examples of both of those things. You're thinking of them right now. As such, and unsurprisingly, Americans have become disillusioned and cynical about the process and happy to sit it out entirely while lobbing bombs at each other or in, in more recent uh, uh, times, lobbing bombs at both political sides but offering little to no solution. Mm-hmm. Again, that's what I want us to get past as a group. I want us to get past this idea that we're in a fight over ideology and understand that we've only been allowed to be distracted over this fight about ideology, this perceived fight about ideology, because we have failed. Because we've not engaged in the process 
because we've let lesser men represent us. Our attention was once focused on ethics and community, right? We didn't have, for the majority of the history of this country, we didn't have a professional police force. But because we all focused on our communities, our families, and our code of ethics, look, they were criminals. We all know about them. The cowboys from Tombstone. Random horse thieves, murderers, lunatics. They always existed. And we didn't have police back then. We had sheriffs, uh, Texas Rangers. But in most places in the United States, if someone were to break the law or victimize their neighbor, all the other neighbors came together and hunted that person down, captured them or killed them in some instances uh, if it were appropriate per their uh, ethical code. And they did it at their own peril, using their own supplies and money, because it was the right thing to do. Because they knew that it could happen to them, and they knew that if it did, they would want those people helping them as well. That is the essence of the social contract. Now, our attention is captured by tribalism. Once more, everybody wants to identify as something. I'm a progressive. I'm a conservative. I'm a liberal. I'm a classical liberal. I'm a Reaganite. Whatever. Right? I'm a libertarian. Is there any real use in that? Maybe, if we truly respected each other. But we don't. In the same way we trusted the state to provide its efficiency and safety net, we trusted it to be a social meritocracy as well. And while the convenience and efficiency came at the cost of our liberty, the trust in their motives cost us something far greater. And that's our ability to reason. Michael Schellenberger, if you remember his statement on an old American Party episode, said that anytime he writes a book or a paper, white paper or, or a column in a newspaper, he doesn't use the names of political parties or politicians. Because when you say words like Trump and Biden, smart people get real stupid real fast. Um, binary politics, as we've seen in the United States, over the past 40 or 50 years, it's the largest institutional variety of tribalism in human history, aside from the major religions. This consistent move away from religion in the United States has seems to have refocused our attention. Um, the average American doesn't think about deities or tradition anymore. Uh, instead, they focus on things that are more corporeal. And that's why, you know, if you look at these exit polls from, from major votes that we have, and we've talked about this before, if you look at these exit polls, people aren't voting based on, you know, things that might be or idealism and things like that. Typically, they vote because of the misery index, which is inflation plus uh, the unemployment rate. 
if that number is high, typically the incumbent does not win because people people vote with their wallet and because of it as well. Uh, they vote with their wallet by buying things that they believe in or like, but they vote because of it because when they want to buy things they want and they can't, that is unacceptable to them. Now, it's certainly easy to imagine yourself in heaven or hell. I mean, we've all been through horrible things in life. Life is is, is or can, at least can be tragic frequently. Uh, we, we've all experienced goodness as well, you know. So to imagine yourself in a world where politics is no longer a circus far away, and is instead a dominant part of your life creeping further and further into every sanctum of life. It takes no effort at all. We're there. And politics is the new religion. It is, uh, and you can tell because it's a catch-all for everything. Politics, and, and, like there's, there's no reason that gender ideology should, should find its way to politics. That should be something that, that gets sorted out by families on their own. But anybody that has an axe to grind, instead of calling you a witch now or a sinner, they call you a Democrat, a Republican. It is the new religion. Of course, we saw this coming. I mean, bad actors always seem to be the ones who who first come with diagnoses of problems and very convenient solutions. (laughs) Pretty much every dystopian novel you've ever read runs something similar to that. Um, it's unfortunate that we as skeptics weren't more willing to question the motives of those offering us these alleged benign, if not self-serving solutions. Um, maybe it was meant to be politics is religion. Maybe there's always going to be a religion, some ethos or tradition or whatever that we organize ourselves under And religion happened to hit a few of those points. It was personal identity. It was uh, in a lot of cases, racial identity and uh, ethical identity, belief system, all at the same time. Uh, and it also permeated through politics as well for a very long time, and it does to this day. Are they not one and the same, politics and religion, today? Warring parties, each sure of their own righteousness, willing to do anything to ensure the propagation of their worldview. That sounds a lot like fundamentalism to me which is after the last 20 plus years of fighting fundamentalism, something that we should be more keenly aware of in ourselves. As always, we've got a couple of ads to help keep us on the air here. First and foremost is Ghostbed, ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. You know them, you love them. Um, I'm actually in the market for a new one myself. I think we're going to get one of the 3D matrix beds to replace my old, uh, my old one. I just keep cycling through ghost beds in my house. Um, We've got two adjustable bases, multiple beds. It's getting kind of ridiculous, to be honest. But we love their products, and, man, I can't wait for for the dog beds to come out. I love the pillow, too. I take it everywhere I go, and I'm not kidding about that. Even when I'm on vacation, I still take that pillow. Um, As you know, this deal's been going on for a while now. It's the the bundle deal, 40% off. If you get a bed and an adjustable base, then anything else you add to the order is going to be 40% off. Um, for everything else, if you go to the code or go to the uh, the URL, 
ghostbed.com forward slash drinker bros use the code drinker bros you're going to get 30 percent off any individual item as well so the sheets which are great they're also cooling uh pillows the most comfortable pillows in the world they've got weighted blankets they've got mattress protectors um they have five different matches mattresses they have the adjustable bases i mentioned before they've got pretty much everything you need to get a good night's sleep. And we all know how important that is. It's one of the most important things in life, actually, is to get good rest and let your brain recover. Um, if you didn't hear the show, the Drinker Bros show that we did with the, uh, the founder of Ghostbed, uh, very smart guy, very good at making products that matter. Uh, he's been involved in three or four different major products through the years uh, that really benefited uh, not just Americans, but others. So, good quality, good people. How could you go wrong? They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan that can extend all the way out to 60 months. That's five years you can use buying this stuff. So, there's no excuse. Go get yours today. Next up is Babbel. The best language learning app in the world. Actually, Stepson's using it now to learn... Italian. Don't know why, but he's into it. So, you know, why not? Um, Brittany and I have been working on Spanish. We, we were planning on, I mean, we, you know, we live in South Texas. Um, and a couple of our buddies have places down in Mexico. Um, they're always asking, Hey, when are you going to come down and hang out? Um, now look, you don't need to, no Spanish to go to Mexico, but it sure as hell helps. And it's also a fun thing to do between us. So for all your summer travels, whether you're going abroad or staying domestic and just want to learn a new language or, you know, I mean, it's, it's really good to stimulate your brain as well. Uh, Babbel is a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Uh, thanks to their addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons. There's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. Uh, with Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson. It used to be 15. Now it's down to 10. They're, they're making these so much more efficient as time goes on. Always learning, always adding new stuff. Um, other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. All of these lesson plans are developed by uh, the, the over 150 language experts that work for Babbel. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. I've used it myself. It is very effective. Um, they have 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And also something that the kid asked me about yesterday is their speech recognition technology. Uh, it helps you improve your pronunciation and accent so you don't sound like a lunatic. Like, uh, you know, like, you, like you've not taken it seriously. <laughs> you don't want to embarrass yourself in a foreign country. So there's also all these additional ways to learn with Babbel. It's not just a standard language conversational immersion or any of that stuff. They have podcasts and the native language games, video stories, even live classes. Um, and it's got a 20 day money back guarantee. It takes 21 days to create a habit in 20 days. You can start your uh, new language learning journey with Babbel. So right now you can save up to 60% off your subscription. When you go to Babbel, dot com slash american that's b-a-b-b-e-l dot com slash american b 
B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash American for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Uh, the journey here is what really interests me. This, like we are where we are right now. Things are pretty bad. But the journey out of it may not be linear. It may be that replacing our system of government or replacing the people who run our government or adding or subtracting something from our government. It could be that that's impossible as an agent of change. It could be that we've reached a point where there's nothing to be done about that. But I can tell you this, there's something that we can all do and that is be better citizens for ourselves, for each other, and for our country. No one can stop us from doing this. There's no vote that's going to stop you from being a better citizen. And psychology is very contagious. The more you do it, the more others will. The more you answer their rebukes about political positions with kindness and thoughtfulness and helping them, the less reward they're going to have from trying to start fights with you. Now, I, again, the journey about, of all this is what interests me because it's, it's nonlinear in this case. It is, I guess, in, in a way, from the ground up, but it's happening everywhere all at once. Everyone who can hear the sound of my voice, who makes conscious decisions to organize themselves around a set of principles that its only purpose is to make the best possible citizen. And I'm not talking about bowing and scraping and worshiping the government. And in fact, I think that's the worst possible type of citizen is one that lets the government get away with anything. As I mentioned before, a lot of this is our fault. Now, In physics, scientists really en enjoy the opportunity to see the birth and death of things. Uh, it's true for a couple of reasons. So first, observing births and deaths tell us about the composition of things, what they're made of, what's holding them together, and how um, we understand the life of a human being because we've witnessed so many start to finish, right? The, uh, the, the, the baby that can't take care of itself, the infant that's learning motor skills, the toddler that's learning how to talk, uh, uh, the young person that's learning how to reason and, and navigate social situations and so on and so forth all the way to death. We understand quite a bit about humanity. The same can be said of ideas and beliefs. Now, entire civilizations have existed and vanished, taking with them their ideas and beliefs routinely. Throughout human history, we, f we find uh, a, a random writing here or some cave drawings here. But I imagine there are always new beliefs emerging. Uh, but it seems very, it seems very clear to me, at least throughout recorded and semi-recorded history, that these beliefs that we think are new might just be variants of old beliefs or even amalgamations of multiple beliefs um, all at the same time, right? 
But this time it does kind of seem, it seems different. Um, maybe that's, maybe I'm, I'm captured by the moment because I'm alive now. It seems different to me. It's easy to be suspicious. This is a good example. Uh, it's easy to be suspicious of people that need help. Um, and this is one of those, this is one of those social decay issues. Um, victimhood is a big part of our culture now. Um, the social rewards and penalties that used to be associated with being good, like when your buddy needed you or your uh, neighbor needed you, you wouldn't help them because it was the right thing to do, whether or not you liked them. Um, the social rewards and penalties now, I, I suppose the rewards are primarily for identifying your, yourself as a victim and how and living up to that victimhood. And the penalty is not necessarily for victimizing people, although you do get penalized for that, whether you're guilty or not. But a bigger penalty seems to come from opting out of the system entirely and not playing their game. We regularly see people take advantage of this paradigm, preying on the sympathies of others, using the culture as an excuse to believe that they're entitled to things that they refuse to work for. If one or two people do that, you know, what are you going to do? Not everyone is going to be a good person, but when a critical mass of people behave this way, then society dissolves. It decays. I think the problem that we're talking about right now is most aptly addressed by Schellenberger, who I mentioned earlier. Um, he ran for governor, uh, did not win his primary in California. Um, he spent his career researching and advocating for solutions to some of the most difficult problems in our country, uh, homelessness and drug addiction. In a search for answers, he's discovered empathy alone is not enough. There's Salt Lake City, L.A., San Francisco, a lot of these cities that have extreme homelessness have tried... Um, can't remember the phrase for it, but it's essentially no strings attached housing. They figured if they could get people off the street that they would stop doing drugs. Now, it's hard to be angry at somebody for being empathetic, you know, for trying to solve something, but explaining to them why that's a stupid idea doesn't make you not empathetic. Uh, as James states in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. In this case, blind empathy without accountability will always result in significant amounts of predatory behavior. Not only does this not resolve the problem, but for people who humble themselves in front of society and to ask for help, they very rarely get it because of the prejudice that we've developed as a result of how frequently we've been deceived. But the deception was our own naivety. It wasn't, it wasn't just, I mean, think of these folks just like children. They're going to get away with whatever you allow them to get away with. Now, Schellenberger ran some programs and did some studies that showed that if you tie the housing to people getting jobs and passing drug tests and things like that, they stayed clean 
for far longer, and some of them never relapsed. Whereas the people who were just giving housing were typically out of the housing or have trashed it or back in prison or in some other sort of disarray within 90 days. I've said this before. Uh, a lot of you have heard me say this. Um, who loves you more, the person who coddles you as you jam a fork into an electrical socket or the person who slaps it out of your hand? Um, we've come to associate accountability with a lack of empathy, but how could that possibly be true? Everything we know about training, training sentient people or training sentient creatures, whether it's training a dog with, with uh, reward and punishment, uh, the, the principles of this, of both classical and operant condition, conditioning, depending on the circumstance, work on sentient creatures kind of regardless of where they are on the intellectual scale. One of these things will work. So how can it possibly be true that holding somebody accountable means that you lack empathy for them? I, I would say that letting them get away with whatever they want under the guise of empathy is at best passively evil. And it's something we've seen in weak parenting over the last several decades. And, and now we are definitely seeing the results of that. So reasonable people know that indulging weakness, whether it's our own or in others, never has positive results. Every time you decide not to do the right thing, it becomes easier to not do the right thing. And every time you decide to do the right thing, especially when it hurts, that makes you more likely to do the right thing the next time. Habit, discipline. These are fundamentals that we all agree on until... Sorry, my dogs are barking. Until empathy is introduced. And all of a sudden we think that we're no longer responsible for these people. Oh, they, they're going to do their thing no matter what. So it's wrong of us to assume that they would want to take part in improving their lives. That's absolute nonsense. And in the inevitable result of that is societal decay, which we're seeing. And, and George R. R. Martin's word, Game of Thrones, one of the primary characters, um, Jon Snow, I'm sure you've all watched it, unless you're one of the five people that haven't seen it. Uh, when asked why he wouldn't lie, even when it made sense, when it would be good for the cause, he said the following, when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies. We are now living that lie where accountability has been replaced with blind empathy, where we've unsolved so many of the problems that society has so definitely definitely solved over the years and where one's personal level of oppression manifested through uh, their lived experience and, and not any objective measure has become replacement for objective reality. So, you know, again, I'll bring this back with all of this in mind. Is there any real utility in applying pressure to our current political system that is organized as such that lived experience and tribalism 
trumps any sort of fact-based meritocracy or even goodness, general goodness of people? Is there any real point in applying pressure to that system? I would say, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you not to vote and things like that. That's stupid. But I would tell you that the solution isn't there. No one's ever voted themselves out of a situation like this. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not encouraging people to to do ridiculous things, try to overthrow governments. No, that's not, again, that's not the point. Because what government would be installed? What group of people are even available right now who would be able to handle that job, who would be trained to do that job and 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 more importantly we as a society we as a people and i mean you and i mean myself have surrendered so much for convenience that we are not currently prepared to support a government from the ground up up for and by the people not until we become citizens once again So it's on all of us, not the government, not our parents, not some other existential force, nothing. It's on us to solve this issue in, in I think, two ways. And again, this is a conversation that we're going to be having across the next several months with a variety of different people, um, uh, educated people who study this sort of thing, um, people who have happened upon brilliance in these areas, people who are everyday working people, some of you, to tell your story and apply these things to your life and report back how it's working for you, how how your communities are developing, how your families are getting stronger. Um, It's all of us at the foundation that will make this country great again, not some politician, not some reality TV star. The first and probably the most important as it sets the tone for our entire lives is to ensure that we don't let our skepticism turn to nihilism. Um, It's correct to doubt things that don't make sense. It's even correct to be skeptical, skeptical of things that seem true, especially if it's a belief you hold. So if some, if you learn a new piece of information and it supports something you already believe, academic rigor requires that you treat that new fact with skepticism so you can avoid confirmation bias. I know that seems counterintuitive sometimes. Uh, because we, it, it's a nice feeling to have a belief and have it reinforced by some, something or someone other than ourselves. But two people agreeing on something doesn't make it true. And while a piece of evidence can help you to conclusions, we shouldn't be quick to rush to them. Um, challenging yourself and your beliefs, I think, is, a, is one of the more important parts of life. But we must also make a concerted effort to avoid the pitfall of becoming cynical and nihilistic. Cynicism is poison. 
it will immediately and permanently corrupt every part of anything it touches, like a rotten apple in a in a basket. Um, I joke from time to time, or or maybe it's not a joke that I'm black pilled, which is to say removed from the political process, or at least my trust is removed from it. Um, and on its own, that might be cynical. It might be nihilistic. But it's only half of the equation. Because I think the power is in our hands to change this. It's not that I don't think there's anything to be done. It's that I don't think those people are capable or to be trusted to do it. That's the difference. As such, it's incumbent upon you and me, more than most, to fight against the urge to roll our eyes and throw up our hands in disgust and frustration and quit. People are counting on you. We're all counting on you, even yourself. You are counting on yourself to step up and solve this problem. Your family is counting on you. Your community is counting on you. I am counting on you. You cannot allow the poor behavior of one person or group of people or even all people from your perspective to poison the future. If you allow this, not only will you suffer, but anyone who stands to benefit from your contribution to society, including society itself, will suffer as well. And how dare you think that that's okay to do that? How dare any of us? Maybe it's naive to think this way. Uh, I don't know. I run into enough people who do kind of lean this way that I don't necessarily think it's naive. But the fact is you can never know if someone has taken advantage of you uh, until you know for sure. You have to act in good faith. If you allow the possibility, this possibility to eliminate any chance of you operating in good faith, where the expected outcome is that the help is both necessary and beneficial, then you eliminate any possibility of ever truly helping anyone, including yourself. Believe me when I tell you the most meaningful and lasting joy that you will ever find in life is in the service of others. Do not rob yourself of this. And more importantly, do not rob everyone else of your good faith efforts. The truth is, and this is one of the most important realities of existence, is that you can't control the outcome. You can control your attitude and your effort and nothing further. I want you to think about that. You can control your attitude and your effort and nothing further. The second issue here, or the thing that we can do, and it's just as challenging as the first, because it relies on, on the first, uh, is to balance empathy with accountability. And this is where the good faith effort comes in. Um, it is, uh, and that, as it should be, very uncomfortable to witness somebody struggle or be in pain. Um, it's perhaps most true for parents. I'm not a parent myself. Uh, I have a stepson, but he's older. Not He's a teenager, which uh, he's still going through plenty of stuff. Um, but especially in those early years with children, this is the most obvious and important place, in my opinion, where this battle takes place the battle between empathy and accountability. 
we've not done a very good job as a culture, as a society, as a country of associating accountability with nobility, with noble effort. There is a tinge of shame and embarrassment anytime anybody gets called out for something when they're wrong, as there should be. There's a tinge of anger when you see something that angers you, but two seconds later when you have more context or you realize it wasn't intentional, your anger dissipates. But for some reason, the shame and humiliation we feel when we're corrected persists. And it wasn't always like this. Um, and it shouldn't be like that. I mean, we were, I, I've said this before as well. Everything you know and everything you're good at, you once didn't know or sucked at. That goes for every single person who can hear the sound of my voice. You learned something from somebody else or even through your own effort and discovery, but there was a period where you didn't know it. That initial shame and humiliation and embarrassment you feel when you're faced by someone holding you accountable, it's perfectly reasonable to feel that way for a moment. But I encourage you to ensure that your first instinct instead of lashing out at that person or closing down is to listen to what they're saying, process it, and give a good faith effort to decide whether they're, whether they're right and whether you should change. And anytime you're debating something if you can't steel man the other person's argument, that is to say the opposite of straw man. Straw man is you build up a fake image of whatever they believe and then you tear it down. It's a logical fallacy. Steel manning means can you argue from the position of your opponent? And if you can't, then you don't really truly understand their argument or yours. Now for kids... It's, it's difficult. Nobody wants to see their child in pain. Nobody wants to see their child upset, crying, hurt, uh, bullied, whatever. Nobody wants to see that. I mean, I don't even want to see that of, of people I don't know, much less a child who belongs to me. So it's incredibly difficult to, to even think about that. But as in all other things, delayed gratification produces benefits, right? The child being taught or whatever the circumstance is that the emotional breakdown they're having now or the demand they're making now is going to be met with uh, an immediate reward. All it does is reinforce that behavior. And not only does it make the child petulant, but it makes them harder to coach in the future. Now, this isn't a parenting book. We all know these truths. That's why I say them out loud, because we all know them already. These truths are the piece of garbage 
on the ground that everybody keeps stepping over. At some point, one of us is going to have to stop and pick it up. And if we want a truly great country, then all of us should stop and pick up every piece of trash and put it in the garbage and live our lives that way. Now, it's easy to look around at the state of the country, at the state of the world even, and believe that governments have failed us, that the system has failed us. There's a lot of truth in those statements. I mean, obviously, our current, our current president and, and both houses of Congress are just absolutely terrible at their jobs. Um, we're experiencing one of the worst runs of government leadership in our history right now. The system's designed to protect us, often block outright or at least stifle our collective potential. Um, whether it's coincidence or incompetence or outright malice, who knows? I would say it's probably the latter two more frequently than we would like to admit. As much as governments have failed us, this is what I want you to take from this. And as much as corporate influence has permeated and corrupted the political process, these things were only allowed to happen because Americans have tuned out of the political process. Our attention has been captured, understandably so, by our day-to-day lives. We want our work and effort to bear fruit in our immediate lives, which is a completely reasonable expectation. What is not reasonable is the expectation that we can leave the governing of our country to those whose ambition and desire for personal gain comes in the form of being career politicians and bureaucrats. And as we all know, this is a recipe for disaster. Another thing I've said frequently is that people who desire power very rarely deserve it, and those who deserve it very rarely desire it. Leaving the running, running of your community or country to politicians and corporations is the equivalent of invoking a self-imposed caste system. We've created our own patrician class through our laziness. If you want a government that's up for and by the people, you have to take charge of governing right now. And as uh, our buddy Chattada said on Trinkin' Bros a few weeks ago, the smallest form of government that exists is your family. But from the lowest possible level of institutional government, your family, all the way up to federal elections, you have to take charge. Now, to close this out, I want to talk about what, it, what I mean when I say that we need to become citizens again. So what is a citizen? My favorite definition of the word is, quote, a legally recognized member of a state with associated rights and obligations. Cornell Law's definition of the citizen, of a citizen, is a person who by place of birth, nationality, of one or both parents, or naturalization is granted full rights and responsibilities as a member of a nation or political community. So this idea of citizenship has major implications for both the state and the citizen. And in it, we find the basis for the social contract between government and people. These two major definitions both include two elements, rights and responsibilities. Now, I hear a lot of people talking about their rights, about their rights, about their rights. What I don't hear people talking about is their responsibilities. 
From our perspective, it's easy to reduce citizenship to the rights we enjoy. Rights not granted, uh, but all the same secured by the security of a state of our combined power. These natural rights, um, ones that are available to anyone who chooses to fight for them, by the way, that's the beauty of these things, uh, are the fundamental rules for our relationship to the state. We give some power to the government, and in return, the government provides some service to us. But our society decided to delimit government's role specifically and their power with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in order to ensure that our trust in federalism wasn't taken advantage of, that career politicians wouldn't change our culture for the worse, so authoritarianism would never rise again in America once Britain was gone. But being a citizen isn't just taking advantage of what's available to you. Of course it's not. Why, how, nowhere in life is there a place where it's appropriate to take and not give at least enough to replenish what you've used. If you found such a place, my advice is you find a way to give. Find a way to replace what you've taken. Find a way to make things better than you found them. It's easy to be dismissive of statements like that because it sounds like a platitude. It sounds like the Boy Scouts, again, with the uh, leave things better than you found them. But the most important moments of your life, the times when you learn the most, feel the most, heal the most, are not when you're taking, but when you're giving. Being a citizen is no different. And how could it be? It's the ultimate expression of our collective effort. No, the most important part about being a citizen isn't the taking. It isn't your natural rights or the comfort you're experiencing right now in your nice air-conditioned home. The most important part of being a citizen is the giving. And it's no surprise that both the major definitions of citizenship include not just rights, but responsibilities as well. In the coming weeks, we're going to have on some great guests, um, people that I hope you enjoy, discussing things that I hope you enjoy as well. Um, I want you guys to take part in the conversations as you always have with American Party. Um, Keep in mind that one of the points of this is to build a community, to collect your information as well, and add it to what I already have, add it to these discussions, and ensure that we are having conversations that go somewhere that don't end between you and I that don't end on the words on the pages of the book that we're writing but that get to people in a way that really matters I appreciate you listening this has been Citizen Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts 
to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.